0: Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Joseph Diedrich, an attorney at Hush Blackwell LLP. We will discuss his article, Separation, Supremacy, and the Unconstitutional Rational Basis Test, which will be
1: published in the Villanova Law Review. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here to talk about uh, the Constitution and the Rational Basis Test.
0: Well, I'm delighted to have you on. Uh, I appreciate you reaching out a little while ago. Um, and this is an area of law that I'm personally really interested in. As you've noted, uh, I've had several guests talk about this issue, but maybe for listeners who haven't already had a chance to listen to some of those other episodes, you could talk a little bit about what the rational basis test is, and maybe specifically why you think it's in tension with the separation of powers.
1: Sure. I think, I think the easiest way to explain what the rational basis test is, is to explain where it came from. And many listeners may be uh, familiar with the Lochner era uh, in the early 1900s and That's, of course, uh, something that's received a lot of criticism for the way the Supreme Court approached its review of particularly economic regulation by states and and by the federal government. And there's it's been widely viewed that the court substituted its own policy judgments for uh, what should really be political judgments. And so there's a a case called uh, well, there's a number of cases, but in particular, there's a case called Caroline Products, which established uh, the framework for tiered scrutiny, which is uh, now the, the basic superstructure for evaluating many constitutional challenges to government action. There's rational basis scrutiny, there's intermediate scrutiny, and there's strict scrutiny. Strict scrutiny applies to certain types of, of laws and government acts where, for instance, the government act uh, classifies based on race. Uh, and, and courts are, are very, uh, uh, they, they engage in a very high level of scrutiny and they put the proof to the government to really explain a, a good basis for what they're doing. And a lot of legislation falls under strict scrutiny, but the default level of scrutiny is called rational basis scrutiny. And really the idea there is as long as the legislature or the government actor had a, a rational basis uh, or a conceivable uh, uh, basis to do what it did, then the court won't strike down the action and and that 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 wording comes from a couple of cases most prominently a 1950s case called Williamson v Lee Optical and at first blush it might not sound like anything uh too problematic but when you get down into the details as as i imagine we might what what we see really happens here is is Litigants come into court, a a party subject to a statute comes into court and tries to make an argument that the statute uh, contravenes some constitutional provision, whether that be the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, the Commerce Clause, the First Amendment. It's been used in a lot of different uh, areas of constitutional law. And the default uh, judicial test applied is this rational basis test. And what happens is most often the court really doesn 't engage in any legal interpretation of the constitutional provision at issue and instead just very reflexively uh, looks to this rational basis test and approves of the governmental action at issue and, and in my in my article I, I look at specifically federal courts uh, reviewing uh, federal legislative action and state legislative action. But this rational basis test really applies across the board and is used by state courts as well to review state and local action. And it's also used uh, to review executive action. Uh, one recent example of that is uh, Trump v. Hawaii from a couple of years ago, the travel ban case, where the U.S. Supreme Court, at least to some issues in that case, looked to the rational basis test to uphold a presidential proclamation. Now, uh, and will i am sure—we'll also get into this a little bit more. But the the basic thrust of my article is that this rational basis test—the test, test itself—raises constitutional concerns. There, there is this structural separation of powers uh, that that is is endemic to the United States Constitution, with three branches of government, each vested with a unique a distinct governmental power, and scholars differ on this, but there's generally some agreement that some, certain powers can't be willy-nilly shared, and, and it's my contention that there is some sharing involved when the judiciary uh, rubber stamps legislative action under the rational basis test, and there's also the Supremacy Clause under Article 6 of the Constitution that says the U.S. Constitution is the highest law of the land, and that it prevails over any contrary state or federal statute, and that when when courts engage in this rational basis test, it really uh, sort of ignores the Supremacy Clause's text and objective that requires it to faithfully engage in in a review and an interpretation of the Relevant constitutional provision to determine whether or not the lower level law, whether that be a federal or a state statute, is actually consistent with the relevant constitutional provision. So, a lot of people support
0: the rational basis test, when judges or scholars express support for the rational basis test as a matter of kind of constitutional structure or constitutional principle, how do they do that? And how do they account, if at all, for the potential tensions with separation of powers and the supremacy clause that you discuss in your paper?
1: I think one of the uh, sort of most prominent rationalizations, if I might, for the rational basis test, is that it is judicial restraint is sort of the general uh, idea uh, that we might look to. And it's the idea that courts shouldn't be overly involved in policing the actions of political branches and particularly legislatures who are directly uh, elected by the people, uh, whether that be the state or, or Congress, and that they best represent the will of the people in, in enacting uh, law, in enacting general rules of conduct to regulate uh, individuals, corporations, and the like. And, you know, there, there there's obviously legitimacy to that view. However, that fails to account for the third co-equal branch of the federal government, the judiciary, which is constitutionally in charge to protect individual rights and, and in doing so protect minority rights. And the framers of the constitution had really negative experiences, both under colonial legislative rule, and uh, in under the Articles of Confederation, where there wasn't always a a what I refer to as a tripartite separation, so you, you might not have had a clear and independent judiciary as a third branch. And their experience was very negative in that all power tended to be accumulated within the legislatures, and legislatures often, at least in their opinion, exercised far too much power. This was also the case in in England before uh, 1776, that, that there wasn't a clear separation and independence of the judiciary because the House of Lords, which was part of Parliament, which is part of Parliament, served not only as the high legislative body in the country, but also as the high judicial body in the court of last resort. And so there was an amalgamation of judicial and legislative power that the framers of the Constitution sought to correct. And, and that's, that's a feature, not a bug, of this tripartite separation of powers found in the United States Constitution. And, and, and while, while it's, it's absolutely certain and true that the Supreme Court of the United States should not and cannot substitute its own policy judgment for that of a legislature, it's also the case that a legislature has no role in interpreting the law in a particular dispute. That's judicial power, and that's solely vested in the courts and then in the Supreme Court and the federal courts under the U.S. Constitution. And so there has to be a very careful look at At each of these three different branches and what their constitutionally vested roles and roles are, to make sure not to conflate those. And, and that's what I seek to sort of expose and uncover and discuss in my article. make sure that 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 there's no conflation between interpreting the law and interpreting the Constitution and making policy judgments within. Uh, the legislative branches or the executive branches' constitutional uh, uh, ability to do so. And I think the rational basis test often conflates those two things. So I wonder
0: if you could talk about a specific case in which a court has applied the rational basis test in reaching its conclusions about the constitutionality of a statute and kind of walk us through why you think what the court did was not the correct approach or not the appropriate approach and what the court should have done in thinking about the constitutionality of that particular legislation.
1: So to go back then to your question uh, about a specific case and, and bringing up Williamson Williamson is a case out of Oklahoma. Oklahoma had passed a statute that said that opticians or anybody who opens a a store where they'll fit eyeglass lenses has to do so only with the prescription of an optometrist or an ophthalmologist. It was sort of general knowledge that that a big, big reason for passing the statute was that the optometrists and the ophthalmologists who controlled the medical boards and so forth had successfully lobbied for this protectionist uh, anti-competitive regulation, which had the effect, uh, no doubt, of of not only insulating them, but also increasing the price of of getting eyeglass lenses fitted. The the Supreme Court on, on review built and really matured this rational basis test that had been percolating in Caroline products and had come from the dissenting opinion by Justice Holmes in the Lochner case. And really said, you know, we're not going to actually look at any of the reasons why the statute was passed. We're not going to investigate uh, uh, this potential protectionist nature Of the statute, and we're not going to evaluate that against the constitutional provisions at issue. Rather, we're only going to ask whether the legislature could have conceivably thought that this was a public health measure. We're not going to ask whether it actually did think that, or whether there's any evidence to support that. So the 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 burden of proof then lies with the challenger to negate any conceivable basis. And this was hit home again in the uh, Federal Communications Commission v. Beach Communications uh, Incorporated case of 1993, where uh, Justice Thomas, uh, speaking for a majority of the court, said basically the same thing, that it's the presumption is that everything is constitutional And there's really a a nearly impossible burden placed on a challenger to negate that. Now, there's been any number of scholarly criticisms launched against the rational basis test, arguing that this isn't a proper uh, uh, way to conduct an evidentiary investigation, arguing that this violates the Ninth Amendment, arguing uh, many other things, but my, my criticism is, is a little bit different, and it's that really here what we're avoiding doing is actually interpreting the Constitution. This, was, this, this Williamson challenge was an argument under the Due Process Clause. It, it probably could have uh, arisen under uh, a numerous other clauses as well, but the court didn't engage in any interpretation or construction of the Constitution. It simply said, well, as long as we find that the legislature could have rationally believed what it was doing was legitimate, then that's good enough. And so what really happens here is there's a a sort of transfer or delegation of the judicial role of interpreting the Constitution to decide whether or not a government act is is okay and permissible it's delegating part of that power to the legislature either the federal legislature or to a state in this case it was oklahoma and when it when it transfers that duty that power that authority if it does so at the federal level that's a separation of powers problem, and if it does so at the state level, that's that's a problem because it's transferring power that it can't transfer to another sovereign, and is doing so in violation of the supremacy clause. So, in your paper, you analogize
0: between rational basis review and these separation of powers concerns you've been discussing with Chevron deference. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what Chevron deference is, how it works, and why you think that's a helpful analogy for understanding the problem you're discussing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so and Chevron deference is actually really how I got the idea to write this paper in the first instance. So in the federal government, there are uh, any number of statutes that create federal agencies And those federal agencies then reside in the executive branch and write their own administrative rules and regulations that uh, implement statutes passed by Congress. Oftentimes, what happens when a a party in in litigation finds itself subject to a federal administrative rule, that party will argue that the administrative rule is contrary to the statute that Congress passed. And we know from the supremacy clause that federal statutes rank higher than federal administrative rules. And so if an administrative rule is contrary to a statute, then the court has to render that administrative rule unenforceable and and apply the statute. If a, if a statute is unambiguous and clear and and there's a clear uh, contradiction with the lower order administrative rule then courts have no problem just dispensing with the administrative rule but since the 1980s and this case called chevron when a statute is ambiguous courts have said well okay we won't we won't fully take on the task of interpreting that statute and conclusively deciding what it means in order to determine whether the administrative rule is actually consistent with it. We'll rather just accept the, that the agency uh, acted properly so so, so long as uh, it's it's within a permissible range of constructions of that statute. And in my paper, I refer to this as the zone of deference. So long as the agency acted reasonably within the zone of deference, it doesn't matter whether its construction of the statute is is the best one or the one that the court would have otherwise adopted had the agency not acted. Since Chevron uh, has been decided, numerous scholars and jurists have launched attacks against this line of reasoning and said, this is a violation of the separation of powers because the court only exercises its judicial power up to a certain point, up to that zone of deference. And from that point forward, it sort of abdicates and then transfers or delegates the remaining judicial power that's still left to decide that case delegates it to the executive branch where a different actor, not a federal judge, not a federal court, not protected by the independence of, of Article Three and salary and, and tenure, sort of finishes exercising that judicial power. And that's, that's a violation of the separation of powers. and That's problematic. I think that's that's an argument that that a lot of people are familiar with, and that and that many people accept. And I think it's it's widely viewed in the in you know the legal profession and legal academia that it's possible that the Supreme Court could change that in the near future, and, and arguably already has begun to chip away at that doctrine. And so I analogize what what. Not only Chevron, but also the, the critiques of Chevron to what's happening with the rational basis test, because in Chevron you have a lower order source of law, the, the administrative rule, and the higher order source of law, the federal statute, and, and the, the the judicial task is to decide whether those are consistent with each other, and if they're not, the supremacy clause tells us that we have to apply only the higher order source of law. Well, when when we're looking to the rational basis test, we have the same situation. We have a lower order source of law, either a state or federal statute, and a higher order source of law, the federal constitution. And so the judicial task, as I describe in some detail in my paper, the judicial task for, for a long, long time, for centuries has been understood to encapsulate this idea of of resolving conflict between different levels in the legal hierarchy. The judicial task should be to conclusively interpret both the lower order and the higher order source of law in a particular case, and then if there's conflict, to apply only the higher order source of law. But when courts look to the rational basis test, they do the same thing that they do with Chevron deference. They erect a zone of deference. They only exercise that judicial power up to a certain point. And after that, they pass it along to a legislative actor. And they say, that's good enough for us. And they substitute that legislative actor's sort of quasi-interpretation of the Constitution for what the court would have otherwise said. And it does so even if the court would have disagreed or found a, a better interpretation itself if it would have actually done the work, and so that that's that analogy, and, and I, I think that Chevron is is much more familiar to a lot of lawyers and jurists, but I don't think the argument is all that much different.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I found the the analogy really powerful, and it does seem to me that you know. If you're opposed to Chevron deference, it seems like you also ought to be opposed to rational basis review for similar reasons, as you point out in the paper. So I wonder whether that kind of parallelism actually takes place or whether you see a divergence in positions there, Uh, but also in kind of building on that, uh, an awful lot of people Uh, think Chevron deference is desirable or even inevitable. Um, How should people sort of in that camp take your argument? Should they just say, well, you know, I like Chevron deference and I like rational basis review too? Or is rational basis review worse than Chevron deference in some ways?
1: Let's take your first question about whether there's a, a, a divergence I, I think there is. It's, it's kind of hard to say, right, because this, this sort of argument really hasn't been raised against the rational basis test, um, at least with the same volume that it's been considered as to Chevron. But you see uh, Justice Thomas, for example, I think is a great example because I, 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 based on his writings, he's fully on board with the separation of powers critique of Chevron deference. But he was also the, uh, the drafter of the opinion in uh, FCC v. Beach, the 1993 decision I mentioned earlier, which is sort of the most deferential, rational basis formulation we've ever seen from the Supreme Court. And my guess is that the, the rationalization there is at least in part based on unelected versus elected officials. That is, well, Chevron is a problem because we're delegating the task of interpreting statutes to unelected bureaucrats in the executive branch. And that's that's problematic because it takes it further away from the people and their representatives. But with the rational basis test, we're actually doing the opposite, and we're giving um, we're giving the people more power because, yeah, even if it's the case that we're abdicating or transferring part of the judicial power, that power is being transferred to Congress or to a state legislature, and so it's more direct and accountable because it's it's elected officials. And, and and that that's all well and good, but I think that that sort of is at odds with history, because as I mentioned earlier, the whole reason for establishing the independent, separated judiciary was because of concerns about and negative experiences with legislatures that were too powerful. That that that's what. That's what Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers. That's what that's what animated the American experiment in really uh, isolating and making the judiciary independent. And that that ties in with your second point uh, about um, you know, whether Chevron and, and the rational basis test are something that people across the spectrum should be concerned about or, or whether you know they're 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 different in that regard. And I, I think I would you know challenge people across the ideological spectrum to to really look at both of them in the same way and to to be critical of both of them. For part of that reason is that is that we don't want to, at least in my opinion, give the majoritarian political branches more power than they're really constitutionally allocated. It's all well and good when, when your party or, or your, you know, your views are, are holding sway or your party's in power. But it, when majoritarian branches accumulate more and more power, whether under Chevron or under the rational basis test, it can be very troublesome when you're in the minority. And, and I think a lot of people forget, for example, that the Chevron test, which, you know, I think is, to the extent we can break it down this way, is is likely more strongly defended by those who would describe themselves as progressive or liberal in modern America than it is by people who would describe themselves certainly as you know, maybe libertarian or, or, or conservative. But people forget, I think, that Chevron was, was actually a case about a Reagan-era EPA program that, that, that was, was not particularly protective of the environment and was was seen as a rollback of earlier EPA programs that were more protective of the environment, and that that EPA regulation was challenged by environmental groups and was upheld by the Supreme Court on this idea of deference to, in that case, the Reagan administration. So these are principles that, that really don't have a particular ideological bent to them, writ large, in certain examples they certainly do. But, uh, uh, you know, just to add one more example to that, a couple years ago, the rational basis test was employed in a case upholding an Indiana law that was largely seen as a sort of um, backdoor abortion uh, regulation that that made it more difficult um, to, to have abortions. So, but yet on the other hand, the rational basis test is often used to uphold economic legislation uh, that, that regulates corporations or individuals and and constrains what they can do economically. So I, I think these, both of these concepts apply across the board. And over time, we've seen defenders and detractors of these tests come from all all uh, uh, points in the ideological spectrum. And and therefore, uh, I I would challenge everybody to really take a hard look at these doctrines. So I found your analogy to Chevron deference really helpful in
0: understanding the structural argument that you make about rational basis review. But I personally couldn't shake the feeling that Chevron deference is still a little bit stronger review than rational basis review. I mean, after all, the government or agencies sometimes lose when it comes to Chevron deference. But the joke of rational basis review is that the government never loses, right? I, I guess I kind of wonder whether kind of on the margins, it wouldn't actually be potentially an improvement in terms of the level of review and scrutiny, if we sort of imported the Chevron deference framework into rational basis review, am I missing something or, you know, is, what do you think about that?
1: I I think that practically uh, you're, you're exactly correct. And if, if we were to sort of map out how much of a judicial task is actually undertaken uh, in terms of interpreting the law in a Chevron case versus in a rational basis case, Chevron goes further and courts exercise more of the judicial power and they do more law interpretation. And so from that perspective, I, I do think you're right that um, it, it, it would probably be the case that at least in some, some uh, uh, cases, that would be an improvement. However, uh, there's there's a, a qualifier to that. Chevron cases it, it always involve federal statutes, and, and federal statutes, even if they're ambiguous or vague in the way that triggers Chevron deference, they they're still sp- specific to some point because they're they're statutes constitutional provisions on the other hand often tend to be even more open textured uh, and and uh, and open to m- multiple interpretations than our federal statutes and and that's not an argument uh, necessarily uh, in in favor of any particular judicial test it's just to recognize Uh, uh, another basis, I think, for your observation. But that, that also can't be used to excuse courts from exercising their constitutionally vested role, just because a constitutional provision might lend itself to multiple interpretations or constructions. When there's a particular case, and it needs to be decided, and there needs to be an application of law to resolve the the dispute of particular parties. There's no doubt that that's judicial power that that's called upon to be exercised, and courts, at least according to history and and theory, are not at liberty to delegate that judicial power to another branch, whether out of uh, a you know laziness or or some kind of uh, you know misplaced sense of devotion to the, uh, the political branches or majoritarianism.
0: Well, so Joe, in closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think constitutional review of legislation ought to look like. I mean, I guess I wonder, are you saying that we should basically take our existing tiers of scrutiny and just lop off A rational basis review and proceed as before,
1: or would your vision be different from that? So that that's a great question, and and you know one might read the paper and come to the conclusion that I am a problem identifier and and not a problem solver. I think I explicitly uh, explicitly call out in the paper that you know look, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that we should go go to uh, certainly go back to what existed before the rational basis test. Uh, I'm not calling for anything specific. That's likely the subject of a a subsequent paper. What what do we see after the rational basis test? Um, But uh, I I think there's a a couple of remarks I could probably make, and that's uh, regardless of. Of what one thinks of, you know, strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny, uh, the the troubling thing really is the rational basis test. And if we replace the rational basis test with something else, that may also offer a legitimate opportunity to uh, consider whether Intermediate scrutiny and strict scrutiny are also proper formulations of constitutional tests. But the thing, that, the thing that troubles me and the thing that really calls for further investigation is that the rational basis test and, and other forms of scrutiny are used across any number of constitutional provisions, irrespective of what the text of those provisions is. And and that to me just doesn't make a, a ton of sense. What needs to happen is that courts more fully engage in the task of interpreting and construing specific constitutional provisions rather than just assuming that some interstitial test like the rational basis test, governs the issue. There's been a lot of scholarship that has gone in and and, and looked at, whether from an originalist perspective or, or from, from an alternative perspective, has gone in and, and done deep dives into the meaning of the due process clause, for instance, or the meaning of the equal protection clause, or the meaning of the commerce clause, uh, which, which has also um, uh, been a, a clause that has seen rational basis review pop up. And, and but by and large, that scholarship hasn't been yet imported into Supreme Court opinions. And so I, I think whatever emerges if the rational basis test were dispensed with, it, it should be the idea that the court has to first of all, the court has to be the the, the actor that does the entire job of interpreting and construing and applying the law. It it can't delegate that task and and defer to what some other branch has done. And second, it has to do a much fuller job of interpreting and construing particular provisions in isolation and not amalgamating broad swaths of, of constitutional text and assuming that they can adopt one or two tests that apply, that, that, that implement all of those different constitutional texts.
0: Well, Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a great paper and it was great talking to you about it. Uh, and, uh, I look forward to your further work in the area. Wonderful.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Brian. I, I had a fantastic time.